Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. And Marco is, is the uh, co-founding partner of Floodgate. Floodgate is one of the best seed firms in the world, if not the best seed firm in, in the world. And uh, we've worked with them uh, a lot. And we're uh, really like, uh, lucky to have her and Mike be partners with us and, and fans with uh, fans of us and, uh, and lucky to be able to glean some wisdom from, from Anne today. So uh, I thought we'd start out with just a, a quick sort of uh, opener right right to it. Uh, and uh, as you know, uh, you know, we have, you know, 60 plus uh, people in here who are, you know, thinking of starting their next thing. Some of them have already started. Uh, some of them are uh, start, uh, sort of navigating the idea maze, thinking about co-founders. We want to go into a lot of these different elements. But, but first, I sort of wanted a higher level take from you about what you think it's like to be thinking about starting a company in sort of the the COVID era or in sort of a very uncertain time like this. And, and you, you've been around for, for quite some time. So you've seen previous uh, uncertain times like like 2008, 2009 coming, coming out, out of that. Uh, and why don't, you, uh, why don't you start us off a bit? Yeah. Uh, so thanks so much for having me and thanks for being on this. Um, I, I've, I'm enjoying the Zooms um, with large audiences. And so it, it's kind of nice to connect with a large group of people when you're sort of isolated in your home with three kids and your husband. So Fortunately or unfortunately, I am an expert in uh, getting started in a downturn and particularly getting started in venture capital in a downturn. So my first experience in venture capital, I was an associate at Charles River Ventures on the East Coast in 2001. And my second day of work was 9-11. And so it was a a, sort of a crazy start to uh, getting started in venture capital. But I have a few observations from there that I'll share, as well as the fact that uh, I decided to start Floodgate in 2008. Uh, In May of 2008, Mike and I decided that it was a great time to start a venture capital firm at that point. And so I've seen actually what it is to start something in a downturn, but also what startups go through in those periods of times. And so I revisited a few of the things that, that I had seen uh, just by looking at some of the numbers and thought I'd share those with you today as well. So first is we've had this massive capital run up. So there's been a ton of capital invested over the last four or five years. And if you look at the last two downturns, it takes about three or four years for capital invested to come back to similar levels of the previous year of the downturn. And that it's a surprise because the venture capital firms actually have a lot of capital. Up until that point, they're raising a ton. And so there's this whole question like, what happens to that capital? Well, in 2001, the first project that I ever led within Charles River Ventures was an analysis as to what the right-sized fund would be. They had a $1.2 billion fund at the time, and we reduced it to $450 million. We literally gave capital back to the limited partners. And one of the questions is like, why would a venture firm even do that? Number one, it's because they can't invest it fast enough. They're not finding enough things. They're, they're just the risk profile changes. But even more interestingly, the limited partners sometimes ask for that capital back. And so we saw this actually in 2008 as well. Uh, the limited partners are not able to make the capital calls that they're being asked to do. Why? Because If you're an endowment, as an example, supporting a university or a hospital or a museum, then those capital requirements, they need liquidity. And so they can't actually keep putting money into an illiquid asset like venture capital. 
You're also just seeing uh, what we call denominator effect. If I said, hey, I want to put 20% into venture capital, and now the public market suddenly declined by a significant percentage, now I'm 40% into venture capital, not 20% like I've declared. And so I'm trying to get out of venture capital as fast as I can. And so you're going to see some of these dynamics that are going to start to play out pretty quickly. And so VCs will not necessarily invest as much as they have in the past. How does that impact valuation? We see valuation in 2001, 2008 decline, and the speed at which it declines depends. So in 2001, it kind of declined and trickled down for about two years and then stayed at that same level for another two, three years. the 2008 decline was more precipitous. They, they dropped 30% in one quarter and then stayed at that level for another three or four years. So the overall decline ends up being about four years. And so, so those are the main things that I would say are, are sort of true out of the last couple of downturns. And you're going to see a lot of VCs, a lot of economists sort of trying to read the tea leaves about the future. And we're, what's happening is everyone's sort of extrapolating, which to me is just a fancy word for we're guessing, right? And you, you ought to just know what the history has been in the past. And everything about the future is just a guess. It doesn't mean that the downturn is going to last three or four years, but that's typically what has happened. And I think it's better for you to prepare for that than to, to sort of assume that things are going to go back to normal in six months. The other things that I would just say, we believe from a floodgate perspective, is that there are are some significant differences between this downturn and previous downturns. One is that it is much more pervasive. So globally, it's pervasive. In fact, if you look at sort of COVID-19 shelter in place, the top 20 global economies uh, went into full shelter in place by the end of March. And so So the impact on how people have been impacted is pretty pervasive. And if you look at the map of which countries have COVID-19, it's pretty much all all the countries in the world. Um, the, The second is that because of this behavioral shift, we're also just starting to see that that impact will be slightly longer lasting because some of the behaviors we're seeing previously will probably persist. And then also the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty about the future in terms of when will we come out of this uncertainty from health experts, uncertainty from economic experts. We just don't see what what exactly will happen. Um, That that reset from a behavioral standpoint, uh, we worry a lot about. And so what are the things that we think will directly be impacted? Again, revisiting 2001, 2008. One of the things that we saw in M&A activity was in 2001, M&A activity really dropped. It, it kind of came to a standstill from an M&A and IPO activity. 2008 was a really weird time period because actually the activity continued and it was pretty healthy activity. We're still diving into some of the numbers to understand exactly what happened. But my experience in 2008 was actually starting Floodgate was great because we had actually this beautiful dual track exit. So for the seed investments that we made, if they were not necessarily going to raise a big Series A, we could actually get them acquired by one of the either a larger private company or um, a public company. And we could we could actually get a pretty fast return on our dollars. Those M&A activities have actually largely stopped. Uh, Most of the smaller activity that we've seen over the last few years have been more uh, for distressed assets, and then the investors are either getting their their invested capital back or less. We think that uh, what's interesting now is unlike 2001 and more like 2008, the acquirers actually have a lot of cash but they are they are not as eager to make the same types of acquisitions they, they did in 2008 to 2012. And so they're more likely to continue the trend of buying up distressed assets at a really good price. Um, and so it means from an investor standpoint, probably less returns. 
um, and even from an entrepreneur's standpoint, less attractive in terms of exit scenarios. Um, and then the last thing I would just say is interesting to us is because of all of these dynamics, what we're telling our portfolio companies is we've we switched from a mentality of outspending your competitors to now having to outlast them. And from a founding perspective, that's a very different kind of mentality. Uh, it's a different kind of competition. It's a different way of managing expectations and teams. So it's it's really about how long can you last, not how fast can you go. And then the last piece I would say is another thing that we've been telling founders is if you had product market fit in January, uh, you may not have product market fit in June. Because of the reset nature of what's happened within the market, your customers actually look very different now. Um, their needs are very different. Their priorities are very different. So it's a very different, it's an interesting time to start a company. But the, the beauty of it is, you know, the, the companies that got started actually in 2008 to 2009, as well as 2001 to 2003, were very interesting companies. And so we remain very optimistic about the founders who are still willing to be crazy enough to start companies in this period of time. I'll pause there. Thank you. Uh, a lot, lots to, to follow up there. Those are great points, Anne. Uh, I, want, I want to follow up first on the on the outlasting uh, rather than sort of growing growing quickly and what the implications are. And one obviously is um, you know is is burn and extend your burn and and and, and runway and and make sure you're you're set up there. But how about particularly on on fundraising? How, how should founders be thinking about fundraising differently now? Uh, you know, for the first time. Uh, as opposed to you know six months from now or, or six months ago or a year, year ago, is there different kinds of risk that you're not okay taking that you were or you know uh, you as an investor? I'm curious how you how you're approaching it differently and and founders how they should be approaching it differently now, either substantively or in terms of the, what they need to prove to raise, or in terms of uh, the process of how they manage a, a pre seed or seed round now. Yeah, and we're we're actually even doing this for some of our portfolio companies that are going out and raising their Series A right now. I think there is a huge uh, readjustment in terms of valuation expectations. So just to give people a sense of what it was like in 2008, companies are raising money at uh, with product in market and revenue at somewhere between a 2.5 and $5 million post-money valuation. Right. And and they're raising somewhere between five hundred thousand dollars and a million dollars to support their companies. And that would actually last them 18 to 24 months. And some of that has to do with actually the structural costs of business. Um, In 2010, I negotiated our lease in Palo Alto. It was three dollars and twenty five cents a square foot. Today, that same space is going for somewhere between ten and eleven dollars a square foot. If you look at Stanford undergrads being hired out of CS, uh, back then they were making somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand dollars a year, and then this last year it was one hundred forty thousand dollars a year plus signing bonus, plus equity, plus all of the bells and whistles, right? And so it's going to take a little bit of time for all of the uh, expectations from landlords, from employees to actually reset, but there is going to be some some level of reset. And so hopefully that that helps from a cost basis standpoint for for founders. But I think um, that's where sort of this idea of what is the minimum viable burn that you can have is an important thing to think about. And then the second piece I would think about pretty carefully is, you know, how important is valuation to you? Um, because I'm having to talk a lot of my founders off of the ledge of turning away about a, a term sheet because they think, you know, in six months they're going to be able to, to raise again. The truth of the matter is I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see, see that happening. And then we're hearing from other seed investors. These are some of the larger firms that also do seed investing they don't intend to actually make investments unless they're seeing valuations in the four to six million dollar range. That's not us, but like that is a reset, right? And so um, I, I think it's interesting because some of the more experienced folks who've seen 
these other market dynamics are going to probably hold firm with those valuations. I think the new dynamic, though, of having a lot of angels um, who have some dollars may actually help persist some of the valuation we've seen in the past. But um, one of the reasons we're encouraging our founders to take money from good investors right now is because we believe that uh, taking high valuation early on will actually make it more difficult to raise your future round of financing. Talk, uh, talk about your concept of a minimum viable company. Yeah, so this is something that we we started thinking a lot about maybe about um, three years ago. So five years ago, we started teaching this this class at Stanford. We were calling um, intelligent growth, and part of the idea was that we believed, and and we started seeing a lot more of this, that there was fake growth sort of rampant in the world. And fake growth you could see actually in public markets where uh, companies are buying back their own stock to prop up their share value. Um, but you actually saw it a lot in startups too. And a lot of it came from this concept of chasing product market fit. And the, the difficulty of product market fit was people didn't define exactly what it was. So if you go to any founder and say, what is product market fit? They'll give you a different definition of it. Usually it has something to do with uh, consumers or customers really loving some set of features that you have. And, and they would, when you would ask them, well, how, how do you know if you have it or not? Most of them would say, well, it has something to do with like the pull that you feel for your product. The, the problem with all of these definitions was that there were ways of actually hacking these uh, the metrics so that it looked like you had product market fit. And so you could fake it. And so what we what we started to try to do with our founders was like, well, how do you how do you make sure that what you have is is real product market fit? So so at least the founders know internally what they have. And from a floodgate perspective, we can have an honest discussion about what it takes to get there. And so, so we looked at actually the companies that had not done well. And some of these actually included companies that had raised as much as $100 million. And when we checked to see why they didn't do well in the way that we thought they would, you could boil it down to some level of um, some, some, some version of product market fit. And so, so then we started going through, well, what are the different versions of product market fit that, that we see go wrong? And what we boiled it down to was there's actually sort of three pillars of what we see. And this is what we describe as the minimum viable company. Um, you start with what most people talk about as product. And one of the, the problems that we ended up having with a lot of the discussions that we had was most people see product as a, a certain set of features. So they'll say, my, my customers love this thing that we do. In reality, that's not as much what, what they love. The customer actually has a job to be done. And so we like sort of the Clayton Christensen framework of jobs to be done. What is your product supposed to be doing for this customer that they love so much? And the way I think about it is actually a graph of delight moments. So if you think about what your product does is it's actually delivering to your customer a series, like a time series of delight moments. And they're accumulating this like amazing feeling of, of gratitude and delight towards your company. So if you think about like I, a while ago, I picked up a Tesla. Um, when I was doing that, like there was the whole setup, there was, there was the, you know, when you, when you, in your anticipation of the car, and then when you finally get it, you, you press on the pedal and all, like everything works. It's like a huge screen. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. You press on the pedal and there's like this instant torque. You get on the freeway, you do the autopilot, and all of a sudden your car is freaking driving itself, right? So like there's these massive accumulation of delight moments. And then the question is, how does that compare against the cost? So what did I have to invest in order to accumulate those 
those delight moments and when did those things happen and how long did I have to wait and was the wait worthwhile? And one of the things that we've noticed is sometimes our companies are only thinking about the delight moment at some really far off period of time and they're not mapping it against the investment that the customer had to make and whether or not it was worthwhile. And so we've seen companies fail because there was this massive investment that the customer had to do in consumer products. They had to put in a ton of their own personal information. They had to connect it to a lot of social apps. They had to give you access to their entire contact list. And then like the delight moment was not nearly large enough, right? So, so we, we think about that as sort of product or value proposition. Then you think about ecosystem and not just customers. So one of the other things we saw was a, an individual who's using the product or even buying the product could actually be very delighted. But then there were all these naysayers. Maybe it was an enterprise product. There are all these naysayers in the company who hated your product and eventually their voices won. And so understanding the full ecosystem within your customer, but then also how they operate. So healthcare is a great example of that. What's the hospital administrator going to say? What's the nurse going to say? What's the doctor going to say? What's the payer going to say? What is the, uh, the you know, insurance agent going to say? So like there's, there's this whole ecosystem that exists around your product. And you need to understand how you operate within that ecosystem and who loves you and who absolutely hates you. And then the third pillar is business model. And I would say this is what most people ignore at the seed stage. They say, we're going to get to pricing later. And the problem we have there is anyone can sell something for 80 cents that's worth a dollar and people will love you for it. And and that, that has to be an element of product market fit, right? You have to actually show that people love it enough for you actually to have a surplus. And so we think a lot about how, how does pricing fit with product? How does pricing fit with your ecosystem? How do you acquire customers? And so how are you able to go into the ecosystem and reveal uh, what your product is? So there's sort of a, a network that is created between your product value proposition, your ecosystem, and your business model. And there's a fit that happens between all three pillars. And the minimum viable company is like, what's the least amount that you can do and understand amongst those three pillars that allows you to have a, a company that is viable? And then the last piece I'll say around that is we're looking for teams that are able to have unusual insights along those three pillars. I want to dig in uh, more to product market fit. Those, those are some, some great insights. And one is you, you mentioned, you know, if you had product market fit in January, you might not have it in June. Does that also apply to if you get it in June, you might not have it in December? And if so, how can you tell? Or, or more broadly, what has changed about getting to product market fit now uh, that was perhaps different, you know, six months ago or 12 months ago? I think fundamentally the market has changed, right? So I think the the reset that has happened is so pervasive that it influences the way we work. It influences the way we live. Um, and I don't think we fully understand or we can fully understand what is going to happen in 12 months. And so uh, I think a good example of that is like, you know, the 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 gym owner, like there's a you know, Pilates instruction place that opened, uh, you know, down the block from my house. And I'm just thinking about that, that studio, they opened, you know, in January, and they were immensely popular. But I'm not sure I can imagine in June, people coming back to that, um, and wanting to work out there. But the question is, is that necessarily true in 12 months? We also have companies that are doing incredibly well today. They're like, we have one company that's been doubling revenues every week. And one of the things we worry about is, is it COVID market fit versus real sort of product market fit, right? And how persistent is this market? And so I, you know, the truth of the matter is like some of these founders don't know. And, and again, it's sort of, we're working on extrapolation and we're working on guess. 
no one has facts about the future. And so uh, that that's the main thing that I, I feel like we should be cautioning our, our portfolio companies about and our founders about is that if you believe that you're going to have better product market fit coming out of shelter in place, you have to have a pretty clear sense as to why, because the the workplace environment has fundamentally changed and, you know, how people travel for work, um, whether or not they're in an office, but then also the cost structure for the, a lot of these businesses has shifted too, and your fundamental market has shifted. So if you were, you know, serving small businesses, that's going to be a problem. If like 90% of your market was a bunch of startups, that's going to be a problem. Um, if your market was, you know, serving travel industry, it's going to be a problem. So you just want to understand, like, what was your original uh, plan for who your customers are and reassess whether or not those customers are actually attractive customers today. Let's dig in there, because a lot of a lot of people here are sort of methodically and soberly, you know, doing tops down analysis of, of markets as well as bottoms up. So I'd love to hear more about spaces that you are more excited about and, and, and spaces that you are less excited about and how entrepreneurs should take note as a result. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about has been sort of this, this whole idea of people's relationship to work. And I think um, I was in the process of writing up a piece that was about the social contract between employees and employers um, when COVID-19 hit. And a lot of the things that I was thinking about really accelerated. And so, so some of the theory there was, hey, look, all of the things that we were promised, if we, if we just like put our heads down and, you know, joined a company and did our work, well, the social contract was, I'll provide you security, you'll get great health care. When you retire, you'll have a ton of cash that you'll be able to retire at a reasonable age um, and live the life that, that you always dreamed of living. And then Gen Z is emerging. They're saying, well, my parents are promised this and, and none of it's really come true. And I'm overloaded with debt. And the promises that I thought I had don't exist anymore. And so, so the initial response we were seeing was what we, we defined sort of in two ways. One is something that Lee Jin over in Dries and Horowitz has talked about called the, the, the passion economy. And I, I've always thought that that's an interesting area because we're starting to see a lot of different kinds of solopreneurs emerge. So you, you'll see a solopreneur who has incredible talent in the space, and then they're able to monetize it either through classes or and content or through selling things, right? What I love about sort of shelter in place is that you actually see people rediscovering talents and passions that they had that they had forgotten about. Like they were, they were a office worker someplace and all of a sudden they've like unleashed the inner like baking beast inside of them. And now like you can't imagine them going back to, you know, just, just being an office worker anymore. And so I, I think that you'll see more of that. But then the second piece that, that we've been really interested in is contrasted. It's, it's what we call the purpose economy. And in the purpose economy, there's two different flavors of that. And it mostly has to do with someone needing some purpose in their life. And it depends on what kind of relationship they have to work. So if, if work is a huge part of their own personal identity, then what we're seeing is they need to believe that their work has purpose. And so, you know, lots of young people now are turning to COVID-19 and they're saying, I want to be part of a company that has a solution to it. I want to, to work in telehealth. I want to work in, you know, in, in biotech. And so we're seeing this whole belief system around whether it's COVID-19 or wanting to work on, um, on sort of sustainability, right? There are people who believe that that mission is really, really critical. And so companies who have a clearer mission, who have uh, purpose and provide purpose to their their employees will do better in this type of economy. And then 
The other type of person is a person who, who doesn't spend all of their time forming their identity around work. In that case, they need to have flexibility around their work and how it fits into their life. And so what we're seeing there is, you know, people want to live in the way that they want to live, where they want to live and how they want to live. And work is sort of a secondary element to that. And so providing flexibility and providing sort of the right context in which that kind of work can happen. We're seeing a lot of this with respect to remote work becomes more and more important. There, one of the things that we've seen is is interesting. This can range from gig economy workers all the way out to knowledge workers. We are seeing some gig economy workers want to just slot into a platform. They want to turn it on and they just want to work. They don't want to think about themselves as a solopreneur. But we're seeing some gig economy workers want to become solopreneurs, right? They want to run their own business. They don't want to just be a cog in the wheel. And so so provide. how do you provide Ironman suits to those individuals, whether they're a passion economy worker or a gig economy worker, so that they can actually have superpowers and be you know, Instacart shopper without working for Instacart. Then um, for the knowledge worker, as they seek more flexibility in their life, there is actually a lot that needs to be done. And so there, I think a lot about um, the same way when cloud emerged, so like AWS emerged, and then ultimately sort of Google and Microsoft came into the market, um, you actually needed to be able to navigate multi-cloud environments. I think this you're going to see something very similar with uh, how remote work needs to work with office work. And so the, the inherent coordination there that's required, communication, whether it's through things like Zoom or Slack, uh, but then beyond that, how do you do knowledge management? How do individuals who work for two years at one company and move on, how do they extract their expertise? and make it more um, apparent to the next person who wants to hire them. These are all things that haven't been solved effectively to date. And so a whole new crop of problems, I think, will will emerge as people want to work more flexibly. And so those are things that that we're thinking about and we're looking for solutions um, as we've talked to large companies, small companies that are navigating this space. Talk a little bit about um, you, you know, what sort of uh, recruiting looks like in, in this environment um, and how, how people should be thinking about it differently uh, in the context of, of co-founders for people who are looking to say, hey, you should leave, you know, Airbnb, Stripe, et cetera, and, and, and join me in, in this journey to, to build a company or in just terms of, uh, you know, first engineers or, or first hires. How, how should founders be thinking about recruiting differently in, in this market? Yeah, I mean, I think... So first and foremost, you want to make sure your risk profile is actually matched. You know, one of the things I've seen in previous downturns is just people react so differently to risk. And especially in a, in a world in which there's turmoil and like the risk, the feeling of risk actually changes on a day-to-day basis. It's so important for co-founders to be in sync because the last thing you want is someone like freaking out. Uh, because something happened out of your control and, and and sort of entering into your mind space that way. And so, you know, one of the things I really loved about working with my co-founder, Mike, is that we were like kind of steady as it goes through 2008, 2009, like felt like the world was melting down. And like, we just kind of kind of kept going with what we were doing and he didn't freak out and I felt like I didn't freak out either. And, and so as long as we're sort of looking at the same thing, ingesting the same information, but having the same kind of level of emotions about it, it felt really good. Uh, I saw other folks actually, you know, really react very differently, even from an investment standpoint. Some people were like, I'm not going to invest at all for the next two years. Um, and so as a founder, especially if you're building something, you want to make sure that that's true. The second thing I would say actually about people that's really interesting is some of the people who are, 
who were really great in sort of the go, go, go growth mindset business era may not actually be the best people for you now. And so, you know, some of the best assets actually for some of our portfolio companies we're finding right now are more of the negative Nancy's in some sense. So this is going to be a little bit different from the last point that I made, but it's a, you want actually someone who is also properly paranoid. And when I say paranoid, it's not about the things that are out of your control. It's entirely about the things that are within your control, right? How much money do you spend? Who do you hire? What decisions do you make? Um, What do you believe that your revenue outlook is going to be in two months, in four weeks? You want to have someone who isn't just sort of saying the very optimistic story, but who can actually be your partner in thinking through the pessimistic story too. And, And in the growth era, those people are super annoying. And they're the ones who are always poking holes in your assumptions. And they're the ones who you want to just say, like, stop talking because, like, this is going to be great. And those people actually end up being gold in this era. And so so you want to actually have a variety of voices around the table who care about the things that you can control and will have different different ways of looking at it. And then at the end of the day, you can disagree and commit. I think it's very, very difficult when the founder has to be the most pessimistic person in the room. And so if you're the founder, you want to find sort of a counterpart that can be a little bit more pessimistic. Say, say more about, you've seen a lot of co-founder dynamics. What are you know, non-obvious reasons why co-founder dynamics fail and how to maybe protect against them or, or other frameworks or best practices to make sure that there's open and healthy communication with the co-founder that once you've selected them, and, and maybe if anything comes to mind on uh, frameworks or best practice to make sure you've chosen the the best one or someone who's a, a you know cultural fit or a practical fit uh, you know before you you've made that final decision and you just you just named a few now but if any more come to mind yeah you know, one of the things that that I think is interesting is when uh, so I like Mike Krieger and Kevin Systrom of Instagram have talked about this in the past they like they can't, they've come to my class and talked about some of how how they got started together. And one of the things that I liked about what they did was they would work on projects together over the weekend and they would try to figure out things that they might disagree on and, um, and how they worked through those disagreements. Um, and even in founding a venture firm, like Mike and I actually tried to get to that pretty quickly. Where do we disagree and how do we handle it? Like, is one of us super passive aggressive and annoying or you know do we have a communication style that actually works with one another and what i liked about working with mike was that the two of us actually ended up being pretty direct um and i felt very comfortable when i felt like he was wrong and i could say it and even if i was wrong in disagreeing with him and we would figure that out later i still didn't feel like I then could never disagree with him again. Um, and so one of the things that we think about with founders is how do they deal with those dynamics where the two of them are not fully aligned on a particular decision that needs to be made? How do you work through it? From an investor standpoint, that's actually really hard to decipher. But from a founder's perspective, you should be able to figure that out pretty quickly. And so if anything, this is some of the advice I give to to people who are sort of founder dating. That's the one thing you want to do, like first and foremost, figure out something that you disagree on and then figure out how you get past that and whether or not it feels good or doesn't feel good. And like, you should really listen to your gut when it comes to that. Did it feel uncomfortable to even bring it up? Because if it does, that's also going to be a huge problem. And so the level of comfort around discourse and disagreement to me ends up being one of the critical factors about whether or not you can work together for, you know, 10, 15 years. There were a, a, a couple of tropes that, uh, you know, investors haven't typically liked backing solo founders. 
and this is particularly COVID era, investors typically haven't liked backing people they haven't met before uh, in real life. And so I'm curious yeah. for your perspective on how you think about solo founders, how you think about best practices for solo founders, or how should solo founders be pitching themselves when it inevitably comes up? And similarly, uh, people who haven't met you know, you and, or other investors in real life, uh, how should they be thinking about, about that? Yeah, the solo founder question comes up because I think what you find is if you've been investing for a while, you're going to have a lot of examples where initially you kind of poo-pooed the whole solo founder problem issue and you invest in a few solo founders. And and I definitely did this. Um, part of the problem that I, I found was the, the, the founder title is a persistent title, right? Like it's not like a CEO where when you're no longer CEO, it's not like you, you were former CEO of this company. Like it, it just, it's a title that doesn't stay with you. So, so, co- but a founder, you will always be the founder of that company. And so it carries a certain cachet with it. So if you're the only founder, you do end up having sort of an outsized role within the company, especially if it's very, very successful. Um, and so the question becomes, are there people around that founder who can say no, who can say you're wrong, who can question decisions that have been made? And, uh, and when do those people get hired into the organization? Typically with co-founders, you see actually that happening on a fairly regular basis. And so you have, you have more ready discourse. With solo founders, you don't see that as often. And so you'll see, you'll see that company sort of heading in a direction and it's really hard to veer off of that. Um, and so, so that, that's the main reason I think, uh, co-founders make you more agile over time. And so I, I think that that ends up being sort of something that I've seen on a fairly regular basis. If you are a solo founder, you, you kind of want to show a, that you can hire, um, outsized talent early on um, as not, not a co-founder who will, you know, be your equal and be able to uh, contribute to sort of the strategic direction of the company um, early on. And then the question becomes, why would that person join if you're not going to give them a founder status? Um, And if you're able to talk them into that, that's great. So the questions are around sort of, are you able to hire great talent? Um, Are they able to uh, have the right kind of discourse with you? If you can prove those things, um, then I think that 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 becomes easier. On the not being able to meet founders point, uh, one of the things that we've started to see the larger investors doing is we call them socially distanced walks. (laughs) And so I've had actually two investments go through now at the Series A with new investors that the the founders had not met uh, previous to the actual investment. And so um, the way they solved for it was just going on a socially distanced walk. And they would literally just like kind of walk six feet apart, but like have a conversation. And I think actually that meeting is really important. Um, I had one group actually drive up from LA to San Francisco in order to be able to do that. And so I would just really encourage you guys to think through that. If the other side is not suggesting it, then push for it. Say you're open to it and that, that you guys can uh, manage it. You'll drive to them. I think it's an important part. It's an important piece. And you actually want to have the opportunity to meet that investor too face-to-face because like, there's so much There's so much in that relationship. And so make sure you do that. Crazy times we live in indeed. I, I, I think it's a great idea. And, and I'm curious to get your perspective on how you think about... So on one side, sort of crowded markets, entering crowded markets, but more particularly perhaps on competition in general and I, I, how startups should think about competition. You know, there's the um, Justin Kahn line of, you, you know, startups don't compete with each other. They compete with other people not caring about them, about their existence. They compete with relevance. But you, given your sort of insight at Lyft, saw sort of a uniquely, you know, competitive situation. I'm, I'm curious how, how you think about 
competition, how you think startups should you know, think about frameworks for it? Yeah. So I like this idea of uh, don't out-compete, uh, like be different, right? And and so some of this is, in the current market, it is outspend. It's not outspend, it's outlast. So that's point number one. But the second is, like, if you even think about Lyft, there are maybe four or five other companies also starting at the same time trying to do something similar to what Lyft was doing. They were doing peer-to-peer ride sharing. And what I really liked about John and Logan was that they were very unafraid to be just a little bit strange, right? And, and the thing is, different matters, different sticks, different is memorable versus I'm going to be better than X, Y, or Z. It's like harder to remember cheaper or a couple features or, you know, slightly faster. Those are not messages that really register for a long time versus pink mustache, sit in the front, fist bump your, your, uh, your driver. It's a friend coming to pick you up was so, so different from a, a positioning standpoint that it was a story that lasted. And I felt like that kind of continued. If they tried to out Travis, Travis, that would have been like the worst way to compete against Uber. And they just decided to not do that, right? And, and so I, I think that's the reason that they survived. And, and I think in this market, in any market, like, be different. I felt like this was true, even for myself, when I, when I started venture, like some people were, would say like, oh, is being a woman such a disadvantage? And I remember saying to people like, I actually think it's a huge advantage because people at least remember, right? And, and I remember there was a conference I really wanted to go to and someone said, oh, well, like, it must be so hard. Uh, how are you going to get into that conference? And I remember I wrote to the guy and I said, I know you have too many VCs, but you're never going to say you had too many women. And like, you know, two minutes later, I had an invitation to that conference. And so like, in any sense, like, where, where are you different? Where's your company different? If it's not different, then there's no reason for you to be a startup like that you have to be doing something that actually sticks out. And that that way of sticking out is the thing that that is your reason for existence. Totally. Mike Maples, uh, also like it, obviously, uh, had this, uh, wrote this Medium post about the book, uh, Play Bigger. Uh, I'm, I'm curious yeah. if you read the book, Play Bigger, and uh, why you think it isn't more well-known in the startup community or, or what's important that, that founders take from it. Yeah, I love that book. So um, Mike and I helped out with that book quite a bit. I don't actually know why it's not as well known. So I, I've known Christopher Lockhead, uh, who's part of that group for quite some time. Um, and, and I think that that book is actually a, a really great one to, to take a look at, to understand sort of category definition. Because I, I buy into this belief that category is actually one of the most important pieces of what you design about your company. Uh, in the same way you design your product and you design your business model and you, you know, you're designing that product market fit, that minimum viable company, then you're, you're designing your team around that. You're designing your uh, go to market. You ultimately have to design the category or you're playing a game that someone else has defined for you. And, you know, if you look at anyone who's, who's been who's been successful they're always sort of changing the rules of where they're playing so that they're advantaged uh, this is actually a, a question I actually like to ask a lot in interviews is you know what's the situation that you didn't like that you were in personally and then what did you do about it and the best entrepreneurs I've seen, have usually changed something about that environment. Like they didn't like something. So they like, you know, convinced people that the rules were unfair and that they, they had a better, better game to play. Um, And so, so I think that that category definition in particular is something that we spend a lot of time on. Um, My partner, Mike Maples happens to be kind of a genius when it comes to category definition himself. 
Um, and so uh, we spend a lot of time on it as, as a firm. Uh, I want to go deeper into uh, outlasting. That's been a, a theme of, of this talk. Can you share more best practices founders should keep in mind for, for, for how to outlast you know, frameworks, practices, sort of uh, mindsets, paradigms that uh, founders should, should take? Yeah, one of the things, so if you've already raised financing, then something that we're, we're working with our portfolio companies on right now is um, you've probably been asked to uh, forecast your business and you have like a two-year forecast. So we're saying like, throw all of that away. I don't really care what happens in 2021 or 2022. I care what happens in the next eight weeks. And I want to see how good you are at understanding the dynamics of what's happening and how fast we're learning to be even better at forecasting our business. And, and so the first is obviously cash is king right now. So we have cash waterfalls that we're looking at on nearly a daily basis for some of our companies. And what, what some of our companies are doing is on a daily basis, accumulating how far off they are in terms of their forecasting so that we can see, are we getting better or are we getting worse? And so that capability of micro forecasting, we think is going to become increasingly important. Now, if you are not at the revenue stage and you're just at product building stage, then in that case, it's all about like, how much can you do with as few resources as possible? So most of our consumer app companies, they're building with basically anywhere between two and four individuals. Anything more than that, they're cutting. If you're a uh, enterprise application, pretty simple though, then they're usually working with two to three people and maybe a few contractors. And so that's generally what we're seeing for applications, pre-product, and, and where, you know, trying to get to a place where they can release something. If you've released something and you have revenues, then it's all about how much can you forecast. And then if you have less than 24 months of cash, then we're, we're having a discussion about, are you going to fundraise? When are you going to fundraise? How do you get to that 24 months of cash? And what cuts can you make so that you, you can actually last slightly longer. And so, you know, a lot of what we're, we're looking at is from a cost basis, sort of like the lifeboat theory, you start with the most important cost basis, and then each additional thing, you're just trying to prioritize what's important. So a, a bunch of people here are sort of, you know, validating different ideas. Some people are doing a couple at the same time, or, you know, as we mentioned, sort of a more methodical uh, approach. What is your advice on the sort of uh, idea, navigating the idea maze process, whether it's uh, uh, any best practices you have on, on either selecting between startup ideas or, or validating startup ideas, or how do you like to advise you know, talented people who come to you and say, hey, I'm leaving Stripe, Lyft, uh, et cetera, and I'm you know, ch- thinking between a few different ideas or looking for inspiration for ideas. What's your, what's your best advice there? Yeah, so we love to see people who have a great story around a few things. So one is, the first question I'll ask you if we meet is, why is this your life's work? And so have like, have a response to that that's kind of compelling, right? Tell me why this is such an important piece of uh, why this idea is so core to who you are that... 15 years from now, you're still going to be working on this company. Like I, I look to Ryan Smith from Qualtrics. So he was, um, he sold his company for $8 billion to SAP and his, his family owned 50% of that company. So he has $4 billion in cash in the bank, right? So he could retire and live on some Island for the rest of his life. I mean, he lives in Provo. So like he will be rich forever. He would be rich in most places, but he will be rich forever. He goes to sleep at night still dreaming about how Qualtrics is going to take over the world. And, and to me, that is, that's the way you want to be attached to your ideas. He's not saying, well, SAP already bought me, like SAP is a separate company. He still dreams, lives, and breathes 
Qualtrics. That is amazing, right? And so, so to me, like, you want to show that that's how attached you are to your idea. The other thing that, that we look for is what we call earned secrets. And so if you go back to that framework of what is product market fit in our mind, there's sort of all of the delight moments and the cost moments that a customer has to go through with the product that you're offering, the ecosystem, as well as the um, business model. You have to have some sort of insight, unique insight that is non-consensus, but right. You have to have something in there that most people would say, I'm not sure that's true. Um, for it to be truly a valuable company. So Viva Systems is a great example of that. Peter Gassner from there raised $7 million total, and now his company is worth $20 billion. $7 million to get him to IPO, he didn't spend all of it. Why? Because he had great insights. He said he was going to build on top of Force.com. He said he was going to build a verticalized SaaS software, which everyone thought was a stupid idea. And he believed that he could outcharge Oracle and Siebel systems. And he happened to prove all three. He could outcharge them by $100 per customer. And so he only had to go to a few customers and charge them a total of $1 to $2 million. He, and so he didn't need a huge sales force. He was building already on top of force.com. So he didn't have to build a huge engineering infrastructure underneath. So it made it more capital efficient. And he was going to go after healthcare because he knew that uh, Salesforce wasn't going to go after that because of all the regulatory compliance issues. And so he had a few secrets that maybe weren't fully proven out when he raised his seed round of financing, but he happened to be right about those three and it gave him massive acceleration into a market that no one saw. And so the questions would be for you, what are the things that are out there that may or may not be right, but have more likelihood of being right because of your core insights. How have you earned those secrets? And as a result, like, you know, where does this all go? So those are the things that, that we think about most. It's sort of two variations of the question. Feel free to answer either or both. From, from the founder perspective, you know, most people here, or many people here have, have, have already started or have already left their company, but uh, some are still at you know, Lyft or Stripe or Airbnb or, or wherever, and, and wondering when is the when is the when is the right time? I'm curious if you have any a, a advice on on whether there is a right time or, or things to de-risk before, before sort of taking the the leap. Um, and that leap could be you know leaving the company. The leap could also be uh, fundraising, uh, obviously. Um, and the other question, or the other variation of the question, is more from a macro perspective, and not just COVID, although inclusive of COVID, which is what what are the biggest bottlenecks we think. From, from people starting companies today. OnDeck's mission is to help encourage more founders. So we think some of it's cultural uh, in terms of creating a supportive community around it, but also some of it is clearly structural in terms of helping people get health insurance or a little bit of money. So I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts uh, either on, on the personal side of things, uh, taking the leap or on the macro, how we, how we encourage more founders. So I think like when you are, when you can't, stand to live in a world that doesn't have this idea in practice, that's when it's right to go. If you are waiting for someone to fund your idea, then you don't want it enough. And in this market, I would say, don't go do it. Like stay in a stable job environment. Um, you won't regret it. In this market, you have to really want to be building this product. And so you got you to gotta be willing to bootstrap it, do whatever it takes. It's sort of this idea of like, you're so afraid that if you don't do it, someone else is going to take it and then you'll regret it for the rest of your life. I, so when I started Floodgate, um, I was told by a number of people that I should go and join a larger firm and just, you know, be a principal there. And that's just not what I wanted. I wanted to... I wanted to offer a new kind of product to, in seed investing. And I knew that the opportunity was there. And I felt like I would die a thousand deaths if someone, you know, if, if a bunch of other people came into the market and did it and I was just sitting on the sidelines watching. Um, so it wasn't about starting something. It was more about starting this idea. And, and so it's that level of commitment. But the reason why I say, why is this your, why is this your life's work? 
is that you can't be just bought into the, the idea of being a founder. You have to be bought into the idea of the company because the company will go through so many uh, near-death experiences that you have to love it that much. And, um, and if you're going to ask for investments from investors, they're there for the 10 to 15-year time frame. And so you need to be two. Um, otherwise, I would say bootstrap the idea, don't take any investment and keep building. Awesome. I think that's a perfect place to, to wrap. Everyone, if you can give a digital round of applause for uh, Anne for taking the time to join us. Uh, uh, thank you so much for, for doing that, Anne. This been great. Thank you, everyone. Um, yeah, I mean, Eric has my contact information, but it's Anne at Floodgate dot com ann at floodgate.com so feel free to get in touch if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you check us out at villageglobal.vc